Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hi, this is Hal Blaine, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, or at least you should be. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. All right, this week's news, as you should know by now, both this show and our sister show, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast, you know, our insane narrative of the entire history of the music in the latter half of the 20th century. What were we thinking? Anyway, we've been working on it for over four years now, and we are about halfway complete. We've almost completed the 1960s. Yes, yes, yes. Very excited about that. And we have a new episode coming very, very shortly. It's almost done. It's episode 17, and it's called Bookends. Anyway, you can find us on iTunes and about 40 different podcast platforms. We personally really like Spotify and Pandora. We're really into that right now. But of course, it is all your choice. All right. And last week I told you uh, we've entered into a partnership with our friends over at the Osiris Podcasting Network. And that is a global community connecting passionate music fans with podcasts about music, artists, and culture uh, like us here at Pantheon Podcast. They are dedicated to the music we love. And that is is in the ecosphere of music. All right, go check out their wonderful set of shows along with Deeper Digs in Rock and Rock and Roll Archaeology at OsirisPod.com. Okay, that's the headlines. Let's meet our special guest. Out of the street corners in the bigger northeastern cities of the late 1940s and 50s came the vocal groups, sometimes called doo-wop, though that term didn't become a thing until 1961, which is right at the peak of the genre. Our guest today comes from one of those street corner vocal groups to have a moment. Al Contrera was the base of the Mystics. Five Italian-Americans, all from the Bensonhurst neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. 
He and his harmony troupe, Phil Krakalisi on lead, his brother Albie as baritone, George Galfo and Bob Ferrante as tenors, had a big moment in 1959. Almost an overnight success in the truest form, they were on their way to legendary status like label mates Dion and the Belmonts until tragedy struck and the magic of those five voices drifted away only to be recreated in later reunions. It's an amazing story of an amazing time in early rock and roll, and it can all be found in Al's book, Hushabai, The Mystics, The Music, and The Mob. They did have one smash hit in the song Hushabai, written by Doc Palmas and Mort Schumann, authors of such notable songs as Teenager in Love, Save the Last Dance for Me, This Magic Moment, and Viva Las Vegas. So they were ready to fly very high, until a cold December night back in the old rough neighborhood when Phil and Albie were at the wrong place at the wrong time during a murder. And just like that, their magic moment was essentially over. We get into that, we get into all of it, but most of all, we get into Phil's wonderful life. So let me just have him tell it. Ladies and gentlemen, my new friend, Al Contrera. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, uh, Al Contreras. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm fine. I'm glad to have you here. And then we can talk about, uh, uh, you know, going back to uh, the, the 50s uh, style of music and, uh, you know, the first iteration of rock and roll music and, and all that surrounded that. So, Al, the, the first thing I want to do is to have you take the diggers, our fans, back to post-World War II Brooklyn and give us a feel for the times while you were growing up. Uh, and then I think that's like Bensonhurst, Coney Island, you know, Nathan's Hot Dogs, all that. Yeah, we were, uh, that. that's the old neighborhood, the Bensonhurst neighborhood. And I, I think the life was really good at that point. You know, I, we, and, and again, it, it, when you talk about how the times were, it all depends on who you were, where you, where you're from and, what you what your age was at the time so we were we were 17 18 years old uh, around that all all of the all the guys that sang on the corners and we weren't we weren't uh, a group yet we were just a bunch of guys singing on the corner and life was Enter, good entertaining you know, yourself the, huh yeah well trying to figure out how to sing you know this uh-huh. is this was a, a a whole other part of this thing but 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 the economy was good and people were working and you know we didn't come from wealthy families but you know we had food on the table and 
and uh, none of us were really interested that much in school because back in 1956, 57, 58, uh, you know, college was not in in the uh, in the thought process nobody thought about uh, college no no we didn't have the money to go to college and uh, and number two uh, I I till today I don't know why nobody but I mean I did go I did go to uh, a couple of years and took some engineering courses which proved to work out well for me later on mm-hmm. and only at the insistence of my parents but for me personally, we were too busy just having fun. So, uh, I, like I said, every, everybody, it was a good time. Music was just changing. It was becoming something that that was for us. It wasn't for anybody else. It wasn't 40s. It wasn't uh, 30s. It, it wasn't it anything. It wasn't for the adults. It was for the kids. It, exactly. It was for the kids. Yeah, yeah, for exactly. the first time. For the first time, it was actually made specifically right. for uh, the, right. this new generation uh, that was just coming yeah. up post-war. So so you're in New York right. City uh, as America is beginning the post-war boom, uh, and across mm-hmm. the East River is the media capital of the world. Uh, you end right. up getting in the music business, but but first tell us about radio and television when you were a kid. What do you remember? Do, do you remember seeing Elvis on Ed Sullivan? I, absolutely. I remember seeing the um, first time I saw him. I actually wasn't, uh, not that I didn't like him, but he wasn't in, he wasn't doing the things that I liked. I mean, I, I happened to be, you know, in, um, in uh, I loved the harmony sound of the groups and I loved that kind of stuff. And here comes a guy, you know, a single artist and he was different. He was to me and to some of my friends. We really weren't into Elvis. I mean, I got into into listening to him later, uh, later on in years, and appreciated what he brought to the table. But we, you know, I, the, the people on on like Ed Sullivan was the big big thing at the time. There weren't many uh, stage shows that you can go to. Uh, Alan Freed was in 1956 and 57 had just started doing the Brooklyn Fox theater shows. And of course we went there, but other than that, there wasn't anything out there. Like on, on the radio, you would hear uh, the four lads and the Connie Francis and the, and it wasn't it wasn't the music it wasn't rock and roll it wasn't early rock and roll right it was so, it was the, the the pop contemporary music of the, the pop, of the era yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right right uh, Harry Como and yeah. and you know Dean Martin and, or or Pat I mean, Boone uh, playing well, Pat Boone, yeah, of, uh, of rock and roll yeah but uh, you know to 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 most kids that were into the music um, I don't think they bought his records. I think, you know, if he did, ain't that a shame? And and the kids would buy the Fat Domino version, right. and the he got the big hit out of it. <laughs> right. right, right. We, we, we didn't even know the business, and I resented it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was, all right. You're, yeah. you're I was wise. Like, what uh... is this guy? 
what is this guy doing? He's he's copying the the guy's song, and he he you know, and he's yeah. getting the big hit out of it. Oh, wise beyond your ears there, ears there, uh, Al. So, uh, uh, all right. So, who were who were your early favorite musical heroes? Well, early on, um, I I really didn't. Um, let me put it this way, I really didn't get into the music scene until I started listening to the stations that had rhythm and blues. And we would listen to the Nutmegs and the Crows and the Flamingos. And I started hearing that music, um, you know, around 1955 and 56. Uh -huh. And it wasn't popular. Uh, but no, these, it was these, on were, the, these were the black stations. Yeah, this was a station way up at the, you know, most people would listen to, and there were no FM stations, it was yeah, all AM. Oh, yeah, yeah. And most people would listen to the popular stations were between, and, you know, like uh, 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 95 and 112, uh, but... These these stations were up in the 1400s, at way at the end of the dial, all the right. way on the right-hand side or all the way on the left-hand side. On the left-hand side, you would get some jazz, which I think still winds up on the left-hand side of the dial. But on the right-hand side, all the way up at the end, were these... Were these um, Stations that played the clovers and the and the turbans and the and well just when you dance and and we I would just listen to that and go, wow that is so cool. Now especially because I realized that those were kids doing that music. There weren't the pericomos. There weren't the thirty five forty year old people. Those were young kids. Like late teenagers and early 20s, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, And then when I heard Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, wow, I was like blown away. I said, here's this little kid. He's 13, 14 years old. I don't think any of them were more than 16, 17 years old. And look what they did. Look at that harmony. Look, And they didn't have any formal training. They were just a bunch of kids. They learned how to sing. And that's what we try to do. You know, we all, not only us, I mean, probably thousands and thousands of kids hanging out on street corners, listening to the, listening to recordings and trying to harmonize. Well, wasn't Al, easy. Al, in, in my head, it sounds like every street corner had uh, its set of four guys that were out there, uh, you know, trying <laughs> to sing harmony. Is that, is, is, is that the truth? Is that the reality? Well, not, I mean, not every single street corner. That's like, uh, you know, uh, pushing it a little bit. But many, many street corners. Now, I mean, did you guys have? Were, did you guys have like your street corner, and this was the one that you guys had staked out, and then like uh, the the rival kids were down the street, that sort of thing. Well, it was always centered around a candy store, you know, or, oh, or a soda shop, right, right, right. Because right. that's that in the summertime, you you hung out in and around the soda shop or, or, or there was a drive-in uh, restaurant in, in the neighborhood, you know, where the kids hung out. Now they had nothing to do and they would just, 
you know, so, oh, let's try singing, let's try this, let's try that. So that's where it all centered around. When we started, we had just so many guys, so, so many young kids on the, on the corner or that of, of a particular area, and, and, uh, but not everybody could sing. You know, they thought they could sing, but <laughs> we know that know, <laughs> happens all the time. Yeah, you know, not not everybody had a good ear, right, for for music. And you know, I say this all the time when when I do my book tour, people ask me about the same question, and I say, you know, it's like when you go to a wedding, and there are certain people that get up and dance, and they can't dance. They just don't have the rhythm. The natural rhythm, not that right, it's a, right. Yeah, it's not, it's not a bad thing. You get up anyway, but certain people have it, and so, and you just, you can't, I don't think you can teach that to someone. You gotta be and born. And that's what happens, right. yeah, and that's what happens with, with the singing thing. You know, when a couple of guys would chime in and, and say, oh yeah, let me try that, let me try that, and you, we'd stop and we'd look at the guy and say, you know what, you... You're doing it all wrong. You can't. You can't hold a note. You know. You got to go above him or under him. And they would try, try like hell, but they just could not grasp the the concept. And those are the guys who became either uh, an agent. Yeah, the managers. Or, yeah, the business guys. Yeah, they made all the money. They're the guys that made all the and money. And they made right? the money. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, as we said awesome. at the top, the, the, the book is Hushabai, which is the biggest hit that you guys, the Mystics, had. And the Mystics, uh-huh. the music, and the mob. So right. I got to ask, what's your first memory of the wise guys hanging around the neighborhood? Well, we had, um, again, I'll, and just so we just can make say- everybody understand, Bensonhurst, real Italian-American neighborhood, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a very, very Italian American, and and there was elements of the mafia, and uh, you know, every you, everybody knew someone who was involved somehow mm-hmm. in, in the connected somehow in the mafia, and you know, I had people in my own family who were involved, and to to to, to more or less different degrees of involvement, but but you always you all knew someone, and. And so when we uh, when we started to sing and on the street corner, we finally figured out how to how to do it. We moved from one corner, you know, where we were hanging out by a candy store. Then we moved to another corner where there was a bar, you know, and then we sing right outside the bar. And of course. This particular bar is where all the wise guys would hang out too. Is, is so this the ninth hole? The ninth hole that's in your book? Nineteenth, nineteenth. Oh, I'm sorry, the nineteenth right? hole, right? Yeah. Oh, wow, nineteenth oh, so, hole. So you just uh, picked that uh, not not because the because because of the 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 mobsters inside. It's just there's a bar. Well, it was it was another place to hang out, you know, and and we we hung out by a. By a bowl, by a bowling alley, we hung out by a pool room, and uh, but we always tried to find a, a, an alcove, either outside or semi inside, where you would get a little bit of this echo, because you know obviously it always sounded better with a little echo, 
and um, and so uh, yeah. when we had that going on, we always get these guys who would be either in the pool room or in the bar, and they would come over and say, "Hey, let me try that. Let me let me let me let me hang out with you guys." I you know, and they were they were they were not, you know, some of them were involved in in a, in a gang and or involved with the mafia somehow. And we, you know, you'd let them sing, but they, again, those, they were part of the people who didn't, couldn't do it. Some of them did and some of them didn't. It was, and then, and as I talk about in the book, it was one particular guy who was part of the group that we all hung out. I mean, we were probably 30, 30 to 40 different young teenagers that not all at the same time, but in, you know, some days, sometimes they were there, sometimes they weren't there. But this one particular guy who I single out in the book, who was a pretty good singer, but he was more interested in being a gangster than being a singer. And what was his name? And his, his name was Jerry Rosenberg. <laughs> now, Jerry, of course, uh, is is an interesting I think he, part I think of the. He did some stints in uh, in jail as you you go through and you here. He did a few things. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, the yeah. interesting part about Jerry was that, yeah, he did he did get involved with some bad stuff and and he did time and uh, and and uh, what I did in the book is try to relate all of this as to we were hanging out with some pretty notorious characters and and we got involved in music because we started to sound good and we loved what we did so i firmly believe knowing the direction we were going to go in and then music came along and we fell in love with music and we fell in love with harmony and it it was I actually changed so kinda, our, kinda, it, yeah, music kept you out of some trouble it was like a, a like redemption you know right, it was right. like we we didn't have time to go do these things with all these other guys who would say oh come on let's go do this and let's go do some kind of yeah. really not yeah. not good things yeah. you know yeah and um so i think it saved our lives because a lot of them never made it past 30s or 40s, you know, and yeah. and the ones that did wound up in jail like like Jerry. Now, the interesting part about Jerry is, just as an aside here, but the interesting part about Jerry is he wound up doing life in jail. And, and during his time in jail, um, got interested in the law and became a lawyer. Oh, a jailhouse he lawyer. Was, yeah, he's the one of the first jailhouse lawyers and um, became very, very popular. I mean, they, there's an actual, there's a book just about his life and actually there was a movie about it too. So he became a really, really, he's an interesting character and I figured it would be a good analogy the way we grew up in all at the same time, and his direction went one way, and our direction went a different way, and we always stayed in touch up until 
he went away for good, then kind of like lost touch. So, uh, is he, uh, oh, he, oh, he, he died in 2009. I'm looking him up here. Jer- uh, Jerry, yeah, the, yeah. The Jerry, the Jew was his nickname. Was uh, his nickname, Jerry the Jew. Here, and, and I think Tony Danza played him in a TV movie. Yes, he uh, did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Wow. Yeah, that's... And, um, I, yeah, was, I think the name of the boom was Doing Life. Yeah. And it's yeah. a interesting book interesting movie and you grew up with him so so basically the the long and short of it is is that the costa nosa was just there it just was a part of life well it was part of our everyday life it was just there yeah you know um, he was all he was he was an italian but he was one of the. That's why they nicknamed him Jerry the Jew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was yeah. Like, but uh, but he was you know, uh, an oddball. Yeah, but he was ruthless enough to to hang out in the gang then. Oh my God! Yes, he was. Yeah. It was. It was very very crazy. And then uh, you know he would always uh, up until the time he went away. Uh, so I dedicated a, a good a good part of it. Just to to show an analogy of had we not, yeah, what could have happened to you? Right, right, right. Okay, so let's get to Al the teenager. Like most boys, it's about finding your people, your gang, and as we now establish, it's not you know with the wise guys. So tell us about the guys you hung around with in your mid-teens. Well, in the in the early as teenagers, again we all had this one um, love for for music. And then we started to fool around with the singing and started to figure out how to harmonize. And, and that, that I, I think back over the years, I said that was a feat in itself because none of us had any musical training whatsoever. So, so to, to be able to. It was all done on the street corner. It was all, all done by, by all done by trial and error. Yeah, you you you, you try to sing a song, and uh, well, first of all, what you do is you, you you pick a song that you want that you like that everybody likes, and then you figure out who who's a lead singer, who could sing the lead, and who could who has a higher voice and who has a lower voice. Now, as a kid. I had an unusually low voice, so I, I was the bass, you know, and the, and the other guys would all try to fill in the harmony parts. And then you pick a song, and you and you go to somebody's house, and you put the record on, and you sing along with the record. Now, this is how we did it. And we sang along with the record, and we kept putting put the needle on and off the record because it was all phonographs at the yeah, time. Yeah. And we, and 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 you put, and then you see you hear the back. We try to pick out the parts that the guys were doing in the background on this recording, and you emulate it. You try to do what they did, and you do it over and over and over and over and over until you get one little spot where everybody hit a harmony and it was like, wow. Magic. Wow. It was your young kids, no knowledge of music whatsoever, trying to learn how to sing harmony parts. Just 
blows but, your mind. But when, you it really did, think when it happened, it was just. Yeah, well, when it, it happened, was it was like, wow. Yeah. And that's the spark. The world from black and white to color. <laughs> good way, good way to put it. Yeah, it's like, oh my God. And he kept doing it in the hours and hours. I mean, we must have spent every every spare minute we had was spent on trying to do this. Yeah. We had, there was no time to get into trouble. So <laughs> this is all, this is all you did. Yeah, once you once you once you had that 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 initial moment of hitting those harmonies, there was no turning back. You just had to have more. No, we had to have more. It was great, and then. When when we would be on a corner or we would be at the beach down to Coney Island and we would be hanging around and singing and the people would come around, especially the girls, would come around and, and watch us and listen. And, uh, you know, you have that little approval there. And so that feeds your ego a little bit and you say, well, may, you know what? Maybe, maybe, this, <laughs> right. maybe, maybe this is working, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. We all do it for that reason, at least to start with, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> exactly. the, attra- the attraction of the birds, let's say. Uh, so yeah. All right. So <laughs> I, I, I want you to relay a couple of stories to me that are in the book. And the first is to tell me how you were first noticed as a singer destined to be the bottom end of a doo-wop act? Uh, I, like I said, we, we all hung out by a soda shop of some sort. And uh, after school, I would go to this particular place. Uh, name, the name of it was Pops, and it was run by a middle-aged guy. And his, he was, everybody called him Pop. I never knew his real name. And he was, the, you know, he he owned it. He behind the counter. We'd go there after school. We'd play the play the records in the jukebox, and we would order an egg cream or a, a, a soda or something, and and all talk about. You know, most kids went home and did their homework, not us. We would listen <laughs> to the music in the jukebox. Wow. So, yeah. so I'm I'm there one day, and and I'm sitting at the counter, a friend of mine and myself. And I and uh, this guy walks in and who I I really didn't know, and he uh, and we're talk- said hi, you know, because we're all teenagers. And I and Pop came by and I ordered an A cream, you know. I said, Hey, Pop, can I have another A cream? And th- th- this guy turned to me and like with a look of astonishment on his face, he says. Do you sing with a group? I said, no, I, I, I don't. I know. I have no idea what you're talking about. He says, because you have a bass voice. He says, that, you, that's amazing. So he says, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. And he goes over to the jukebox and he puts a, a nickel in and he picks the platter song, You'll Never Know. You know, you'll never know, right? So I, so I. The callback says, uh, you, for, the, for the turnaround, right, right, right. He says, he says, can you do that? I said, I don't, I, I guess, I, you know, so I, I, I did it. You'll never know. And, and he goes, you are a bass. You're fooling around with me. You know what you're doing. I, said, I really have no idea. Do I sing along with, with, 
recordings, uh, you know, at home where I listen to the music and I try to sing along. Because I had a bass voice, yeah, I, I You do. gravitated and to I, those parts, right. Yeah, because it was easy. I couldn't do the lead. It was too, too high for me. Mm-hmm. It was unnatural. So I did those. I, I learned those parts kind of on my own. So anyway, so he goes, well, he says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a group, and you should come down to, to practice. The first time I heard that, practice for singing, I mean, I always knew practice was for basketball or you know, was, was something, Baseball, some kind yeah, of sports-related yeah, 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 yeah. event, but mm-hmm. practice for, for singing. I said, wow, what a unique thing. And, and then, of course, there were a bunch of kids in, in, the, in, the, in the soda shop, the, in the boots, and, and we was just fooling around. He was giving me things to sing, and I would try to sing them, and, and they were all like, wow, wow, that's cool, that's this, that. So that's when I got bit by the by the bug. Then I went to the to the rehearsal, and um, that's when I, I realized nobody knew what the hell they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> nobody nobody knew. You guys nobody knew. Got... He had a good ear. Yeah, he had a good ear. And and this his name was Tony Armato. Tony Armato eventually uh, became one of the passions you know, with uh, the song Just To Be With You. And uh, so he uh, was the reason that I got involved in, in singing. He picked so, you out uh, picked you out of the soda shop uh, right there just because right. you, were, you were asking for, uh, for a vanilla soda. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now I, I think about this and, and I say, if this guy didn't, pick me out at that particular moment, where would I have, what would I have done? The timing, the timing of all this, I would have never realized that maybe it would have happened, but I doubt it. But I, I would have never, I would never on my own decided, well, you know, I'm going to go find a group to sing with. I would have never done that. It was just, this is like the oddest thing in the world. Just timing. The, the timing. Yeah. Well, and that's why I want you to relay a second story to me, because that are okay. to, to, to our diggers here, uh, that that this is uh, uh, the the opposite side of what could have happened. And, and I'd like you to take me to the Bop House on Coney Island and tell us about a date between the chaplains and the rebels. <laughs> right. Well, that, is another thing that went on at the time uh, in the in 50, 57, 58, 59. And, uh, I mean, there were gangs. And um, the, the, the gang that we stayed at this place called the Bop House, it was uh, underneath the board. A little more dangerous than the Jets and the Sharks, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't. This was not a movie. <laughs> this was the real deal. And and we stayed um the bop house had was was really really cool because it was underneath the boardwalk and it was a like a little cut out storefront and they would serve uh soda and beer and hot dogs and french fries and all this and they had a 
jukebox and the jukebox would play the the current music and the kids would all hang out and dance you know underneath there and it was of course the summertime and and that just just to give you a, a visual on the whole thing it was you know it was a hot day the and the the only light you would see was coming from the slits in the boardwalk above so you you know it was like like a filtered light and the jukebox was blaring and you could smell all the the smells from all the food and it, it was just a good time but this particular day we heard that that the chaplains which which were a uh rival gang were coming down to kick our butts. <laughs> they were going to come down, and we heard through the grapevine. And so the Rebels, which was a motorcycle gang, uh, similar to Hell's Angels kind of kind of thing, uh, who also stayed at, at this same bop house uh, thing, they sent the word L- out. Literally and, out of the wild ones, uh, Brando and all that. Uh, Exactly the same, same. To get a to get a picture of it, that's what you got to look at. You look at that, the wild ones with the with the motorcycles and the yeah. jackets and yeah. the, you yeah. know, you know. So it's eighty five degrees out, and you got a black leather motorcycle jacket on because that's what you wear. <laughs> you have a t shirt underneath, but you had a black, you know, and. Now, I, did, I wasn't part of the rebels. We were just part of our own. We, we were part of what what was called the Bath Beach Boys. Uh, Bath the, Beach, uh, the meaning the na- You were the auxiliary we're, we're, Yeah, we were like <laughs> the uh, younger version of them. Yeah. And, and so we... Uh, and that's my point. This is where you could have ended up if it wasn't for music. But Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first time... Uh, well, of course, it it actually happened. I mean, the the rebels came down. I mean, uh, I mean the uh, chaplains came down. They had there was also a motorcycle gang, and they they came down, and the rebels were there, and a, a big gang fight ensued underneath the boardwalk, and I, I was like all of sixteen and a half. I was. Uh, can't curse on the radio, but yeah, I was you can scared. curse all you want. You can curse all you want. This is a podcast. I mean, I was scared shit. Right. Scared. Right. I didn't. But fortunately, this is a full on knives and and uh, chains going full, and everything. 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 Everything, everything was but going guns. on. Right. Yeah. Nobody had a gun. No. But uh, but uh, but everything else was was. Uh, uh, I, I, I guess allowed, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and, this and, is, this and is they like were, 20, 20, 30 people, right? Well, probably, yeah, probably around anywhere from 20 to 40 people running around hitting each other. <laughs> and, and I was like hiding behind one of my friends because I hadn't, first of all, I was all of 111 pounds and, <laughs> And these people were some of these. They were not kids. They were, you know, in their twenties and thirties. Yeah, yeah, they were men. Yeah. And, and they were. I mean, these they were not fooling around. You know, I mean, it's chain swinging and and uh, bats and, and 
all kinds of things going on. And I, I saw more blood in that 15, 20 minutes of battle spurting from people's heads. And I was like, whoa, this is unbelievable. I, I was in total shock. I, I never, ever experienced anything like that again in my in my life and i really would stay away from anything like it because it was it was an incredible experience but having said that it it also was a sobering event because why why and you think about it later i mean in my own mind why would people do that i don't even think half of them knew why they were even there they well they knew was that it's a gang fight, and you know they're going to knock the the crap out of each other until the the police came, which eventually happened. And when the police came, they started hitting everybody again <laughs> with, <laughs> with the bat sticks. Right, right, right. I mean, if you know, if you weren't already unconscious, they were going to make sure you were unconscious. Don't do this so again. Like a, I says this is a losing proposition. This makes no sense at all. First of all, what 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 would you gain if you won and nobody wins? So I I said in my own mind, I said this is one thing I don't want to do. I I know for sure I don't want to be this. So they all got arrested. Everybody got arrested. What we did is when we heard the sirens. We all went out to the beach and found a blanket and hung out with some girls and everything. Uh, acted you like know, uh, you knew nothing. You knew act, nothing. Was we acted on. like we, yeah, we were sunning ourselves, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, I, I mean, I did do a bigger description in the book, but it, was, it would take me a, yeah, yeah. a long time to. One of those events that never leaves your mind. And, uh, I don't know, Al. It seems like you were uh, not ever destined to that sort of life, uh, but totally destined (laughs) to the musical side of life. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Life is very strange. Life is really, really strange. It has has ebbs and and, uh, tides, big uh, high tides and low tides and everything. And you just, you, you hang out and you just get drawn into stuff and Sometimes you have enough sense to say no, and sometimes people just go into <laughs> stuff, right, <laughs> right, right. you know, and they just get involved with some of these things, and uh, you know, right. I don't know. All right, 1958. So tell us how the mystics formed by five Italian-Americans with Bensonhurst bonds. Okay. Well, the original group, go back to my... Uh, Go back to my story about Pop's Candy Store. When I got involved with Tony uh, Amato, we started a group, and started a group called uh, uh, the uh, Overons. Became one of the yeah. The Overons were 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 the group. Well, they were already in place. I I was trying to get involved with a different group, and which nobody knew what the hell they were doing. The Overons, uh, which Tony was a part of, had had uh, five guys, and they were probably the premier vocal group in the neighborhood. They had experience. They they knew what they were doing, and 
and uh, they were kind of well known in in those circles. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't in the newspaper, but they but within the within the neighborhood they were well known. Uh, all the people who who sang or who knew anything about it, and um, their their bass singer was uh, he was a good bass singer, but he was kind of had he had stage fright. Mm. So they were invited to do a show at a theater up on stage and he didn't want to do it. And he decided that, that that's not what he wanted to do. And uh, anyway, so Tony, Tony Omato tells the guys, look, I met this guy. He's, he's, um, he can sing bass. He's got a great bass voice. And why don't we try him out? And, I'm sure he'll do the show with us. So, so that's what happened. I, I met them, and my, my audition was in in the back seat of an Oldsmobile with with the five with four overons and me in the back seat with, between two of them singing um, a, uh, a a version of uh, "Come Go with Me." Mm-hmm. Now, I knew Tony had warned me early on. He said they're probably going to do "Come Go with Me," so you know, Make you sure know you the know song. It. Yeah. Make yeah. sure you, you you have the part down. Right. Right. And I, I I knew the part, but I really didn't know a whole bunch about keys. You know, like I know I would sing it in the key of the of the record, and I would, and most people, most groups did that. Yeah, the because they right, right. Supposed to yeah, because they didn't have the knowledge yeah, of to, knowing. Yeah. Well, you know what? It might be a little high for you, so we could change Drop the key. We didn't bit, know yeah. that. We just, we just, you know, whatever song, whatever was recorded, and uh, that's how we did it. So anyway, I learned that and a couple of other songs, and uh, I did it, and and we had, and they all liked it, and I said, and it sounded so amazing. I never really heard a full song all in all in harmony and if you know well you do you know about music and you know that if uh, if three people besides the lead there's three people in the background they can cover the three notes that are essential and when you add a bass a low part to those three voices it just gives it that Rich. Resonance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it gives it so a you nice have the chord, rich. The chordal resonance uh, with the, with the yeah, four exactly. voices together. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that happened. And when that happened, they all, they, you know, this is, uh, you know, go outside of the car for a few minutes, and then <laughs> let us talk it over. Right. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta vote on this, and uh, and then it came back. Everything's cool. You're in. I was I was ecstatic. I said, "This is amazing." Here I am. I wasn't even. I, I mean, before this, maybe maybe two months of of trying to figure out how to sing, and uh, uh, you know, with the, with this group who really didn't know much, and now I'm in the premier group in the neighborhood. I <laughs> says, "Wow, this is incredible." And we went to work and we started to really rehearse because we had this show coming up. And it was a contest uh, given by a, 
by the theater manager of a of a movie theater, and he just had this idea to do a contest of all the local groups because he would uh, he would see all these young people rehearsing on the corners and uh, and and he knew a little bit about the music and he wanted to try this out. Well, it was a big success. A lot of tickets were sold. A lot of well, of course, every group had about 50 or 60 relatives, so everybody <laughs> well, came take to the take care of those show. tickets, all right. <laughs> yeah, it was right away, you know. Yeah. And uh, so we, and we won the contest. And I, I think, you know, maybe we got $50, which was an incredible amount of money at, the, at that time in 1957. 57, 58. Yeah. It was just an enormous, uh, I mean, it was equivalent to winning $500. It was just incredible. So um, once, once that happened, uh, we were now really intent on um, moving forward. We thought, we thought who the hell we were now. Right. The yeah, sky's we the limit. Constant. The sky's the limit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. let's go, let's go make a record. Right. So now this okay. is, this is, this is the Overons. Now is, is, is Phil and Albie, uh, Krakalisi and George Galfo and Bob Ferrante in the band at this point in the, in the group? Well, Albie Krakalisi is in Bob Ferrante, uh, Tony Armato, right, and myself, and the lead singer's name was Joe Strobel. What had what had happened is um, Joe Strobel uh, picked up the guitar and got obsessed with playing guitar, and eventually we had an argument, and he left, and uh, Phil Krakalisi, Albie's brother took over the lead position and Tony Amato left with a, with a misunderstanding and we got George Galfo into the group who was Phil and Albie's nephew, if you could believe that. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. All right. Yeah. All yeah. Right. So the three of them are related uh, by they're, blood. They're related. Yeah. yeah. And the so three of them and Bob Ferranti and I. Right. And that, yeah. That became the final version of the Overons. Right, and let's How, let's just let's just set this up for the audience. So Phil is a, okay. the lead voice, so he sings yep. the 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 lead parts, and then the the harmonies are done by by Bob Fronte and George Galfa, who are the first and second tenors, and then right. Albie as the baritone, right? And right. then you're and, at the very bottom end as the bass, right? Right, and then the bass. So now. Now we're we're rehearsing like crazy and we're doing all kinds of things. And now our goal, our goal is to make a record. This is what this is what we want to do now. Yeah. Now we're now we're up to around 1957, getting close to 1958. And we said, well, you know what? We're ready. We we rehearsed a lot. We we learned some stuff. We listened to other groups that that knew a little bit more about music and we learned a couple of things and we're ready we're, we're gonna go make a record and of course we went to a couple of the shows at the box and saw the Allen the groups up there and the Cadillacs and the, uh, all these other groups and say wow we could do that we could do that 
So we go up and, and we said, well, of course, where you go, you go to New York City. And that's where the record companies were. Yep. We didn't right realize. Right. Yeah, we... So Over we went, we looked, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A subway ride. Right. Now we, we, you know, so Bob Ferranti was kind of like the spokesman of the group. He was with the oldest and, and knew a little bit more about life than most of us. And uh, he, he just, he says, okay, so I'm going to look up some record companies and we're going to go to the city and we're going to, we're going to go in and tell them that we're ready to record. So, okay, let's, let's go. So we go and first place we went to was, uh, was G records and we walk in and, uh, you know, one, one behind the other and the girl at the desk says, yes, can I help you? So, well, you know, we want to, we're here to, uh, audition. We, you know, we have, uh, did you make an appointment? No. <laughs> well, you have to make an appointment. Okay. So, okay, <laughs> oh. we'll make an appointment. When do we come back, right? Well, all right, right. So we made an appointment, and we had to come back. Yeah. And when we, when we and when we came back the second time, we we did our couple of songs, and they liked it very much, and they they handed us a, a, a contract. And there were many many groups there. All all everybody was. It was a cattle call. I guess it was. That, that yeah, was the day of auditions, basically. That was your appointment day. day. Right, right, exactly, right. So, so here we are. They hand us a contract. They hand it. Everybody gets, everybody got a contract. <laughs> you get a contract. The, you get a contract, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're out in the hallway looking at this contract and going, I mean, this, this, something's not right here. This is a little bit too easy. You know, I don't think this is the right way to do this. And we're having our own conversation. The girl uh, at the the desk said, I hope I heard you guys sing. You guys are really good. What you really need to do if you want some advice is to get a demo recording and bring that around because it'll show you off. A better because it'll be done in the studio and the right. whole thing. Right. And we had no idea what a demo recording was. It was just like, okay, okay, we'll we'll do that. And the next uh, week or two, we went we went uh, searching around for how do you make a demo recording? And of course, our only source of of knowledge was our our neighborhood. You know, we don't know anybody else. So we asked around. We went to the 19th hole, and we says, we know, though, maybe there's a wise guy in, in, involved in, in music because they're all involved. So yeah, we so found this. Frankie Mouth. <laughs> right. Frankie Mouth, exactly. who you're going to introduce us to here, and Jimmy Doyle and, and all of that. Exactly. Exactly. And Frank, so Jimmy... Frankie Mouth says, yeah, yeah, I know all about music, and yeah, demo, yeah, I know what that is. So we figured, well, if he knew what a demo was, and he really knew about the music business. So uh, so he gives, he introduces us to this guy, Jimmy Doyle. Jimmy Doyle, who is an ex-musician, uh, he says, yeah, now i got a studio, meet me. Uh, meet me next week at the Broadway Recording Studio, sixteen fifty Broadway, and, and uh, I'll set it all up. He says it's going to cost you uh, five hundred 
five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars. Serious cash. Man. Holy God! Yeah. Are you kidding? Five hundred dollars. We don't have five hundred dollars. Says well, when you get the money, you let me know and we'll set it up. So we we didn't know where to get the money. We look at that time. Minimum wage was a dollar an hour. Yeah. So I mean, you know, five hundred dollars. Take a long time. A lot of money. Five hundred. A lot of a lot of money. So we we um, we said, well, where the hell are we going to get this money? Because I. So Bobby has this, says, we'll go, we'll, we'll take a loan out. We'll go to the bank and we'll take a loan out. I says, okay. Yeah. So we all, and we hung out together all the time, right? Everywhere we went. It was if as, we were as in the, the car, five guys. It was the five guys. Yeah. And if we were in the car, we sang. Mm-hmm. We were down the beach, we sang. If we wherever where we were, we sang. So we go to the bank. And uh, in Brooklyn, and we and we walk in, and you know we all had a, like a, a little tiny savings account each that you know you you put a few dollars away you know for Christmas presents or whatever, like your family tells you you got to save your money. You know we didn't know why, but we did. So maybe I had all the twenty five dollars in in the bank. So we go in the bank and we see the bank manager and we said yeah we'd like to uh we'd we'd like to uh take out a loan and uh he goes okay for what for oh we're gonna make a recording and uh we'll pay you back as soon as we make money and he goes that's not how it works yeah he says he says we you need you need collateral right and we said, yeah, well, you're right. What, what's collateral? <laughs> I never heard that word before. <laughs> he says, well, collateral is, you you know, we, you have something, something to draw Something valuable. Something valuable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Or, or you get a cosigner. And we uh, all looked at each other. No, no. A cosigner. Okay. Uh, what's a cosigner? <laughs> So he explains what a cosigner is, and we got we got Bobby's father to cosign for us for the loan. We get the five hundred bucks, we give it to Jimmy Doyle. He sets up the session, and now where we do we do four songs uh, that we wrote, and you know, and we 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 did the re- the recording. At the end of the session. Yeah. Now, hold the, on a minute. Hold on a minute here. Because this is pretty <laughs> incredible. So this right. is your first recording session. And yes. not only did you get to hear a professional recording of yourselves with instrumentation backup, but you guys uh-huh. end up by the end of the night with a manager and on Lori Records. Yes. This is crazy. Okay. How- I just want to talk about this up, man. It's timing, timing. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you guys must have been really good. Well, we were. I honestly, we we really had a very very good sound. So, so now we, the recording engineer took a liking to us, and he goes, uh, you know how much how much he says, look, this guy Jimmy Doyle, he's. You 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 guys are nice guys, and you're what really are you doing kinda... with Jimmy Doyle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly right. What are you doing? He's a, he he's a shyster, you know. He's a this, he's a that. 
I said, well, well you know, we don't know anybody in the, in the music business. He says, hold on, hold on. He makes, picks up the phone and he calls uh, this guy, Jimmy Gribble. Yeah. And he tells him, and we're listening to him on the phone. He says, listen, I got a couple of kids down here that are, knock your socks off. They're really good. And they're going down the wrong path with these weird guys. So Frankie Mouth with listen? Jimmy Doyle. Right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he said, do you want to you listen to them? And Jim Gribble came, came down, listened to uh, the recordings we did. Um, and then he said, why don't you boys come up to the, my office on the, on the 10th floor and we'll talk. And we said, sure, sure. Then we found out that he was managing the Fiestas at the time. They had, they had a record out called So Fine. Now, that was really impressive because this is the first person we met that actually was really in the music business. And he was a manager. Yeah. And he, a real manager. Yeah. Yeah. He kept talking to us and, and looking at us and, and uh, questioning us. And then finally he pick up, he picked up the phone and he, and he called uh, Gene Schwartz at Laurie records. And he said, I have a bunch of kids here that uh, you, you would, you, you got to listen to. And he set up an appointment same day, same yeah. day. Now, now and, at, and, at the time, Lori Records also has Dion and the Belmonts. Well, they are, yeah. Now, Lori Records had Dion and the Belmonts. They already had I Wonder Why, and they were uh, just came out with the, were coming out with their second record or third record. It was Don't Pity Me. And, you know, we were like, whoa, this is unbelievable. We're going to go with. And we're going to go audition for, for Laurie Records. Come on, did, we didn't even get a, a copy of our, uh, of, of the acetate, of our demo right? yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Uh, it just, it, it just says, it just says, Al, you guys had to have been really good. Well, you know, timing was everything. You know, when, when I realized later, later on, years later, that Laurie Records was in need of a group like us mm-hmm. because they they set their their pattern was a Dion and the Belmonts kind of thing, you know, as as a record company. They did put out a lot of different things, but their meat their, their meat and potatoes was was Dion type of of recording, and we we were similar. In yeah. a way, you know, yeah. our harmony and the lead. And Phil was kind of a teenage voice like Dion. And and so they they wanted, what we found out many years later is that the president of Lori was just hedging his bet because he he knew he had a hit, could make perform hit records with Dion the Belmonts. But if anything ever happened to them, he wanted to have a backup. You know, and at the time there were some things going on that that uh, kind of like they were sending signals that it wasn't uh, really hunky dory, you know. So, so anyway, so he uh, he he heard us, he liked us, and uh, 
I'll accept the name. I think, I think he didn't like the name. Yeah, well, band, right? the overall. Well, the, the name had to change, right? And so we all went back home that day and uh, we all said, well, let's and all again, pick a folks, name. This, this is all in the same day. <laughs> yeah, well, within a day or two, yeah. the name happened to, you know, so we, uh, we go home, we just, oh, let's all pick a name and write it on a piece of paper and we'll put it in a, in a, in a baseball hat and, and Bobby will pick out one piece of paper and that'll be the name and no one could change it. Okay. So I, I, I was pressured. I had to come up with a name. Everybody had to come up with a name. And I, I says, you know what? Let me look through the dictionary. You know, we actually use dictionaries at that point in time. And I'm looking through the dictionary and I see Mystic. And I says, boy, that would be a cool name, Mystics. So I write Mystics down on the paper. I fold it up. We all get together. I throw it in the hat. And Bobby picks out the mystics and we became, and that was our name. Amazing. That's, it's it's a great name, <laughs> but I got to ask, what were the other names put into the hat? I, I, you know what? I really don't, don't remember. Everybody remember. asked me, <laughs> I, you know, everybody asked me that. I mean, it was something, you know, like the, the blah, blah, blah tones or the, the something, or, you know, like names that were out at the time, but I know but one name. He, I know one name. It wasn't, and that was the courtesans. Oh, the Cortesians. The Cortesians. Okay, Cor- Cortesians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy Doyle wanted to name us the Cortesians, and then we looked that up in the dictionary, and it meant the ladies of the night. Wow. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, higher, higher class, but uh, yeah, said, you, know, you know, maybe yeah. bit five Italian young men. Uh, yeah, of, we, almost know, threw, yeah. we almost threw him out of his apartment window. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But he so, lived on the first floor. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't have done anything. Oh, pa-boom. Uh, so let's talk about the uh, Hushabai and how this became the Mystics Breakout song written by Don Palmer and Mort Schumann, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, and, and I, I Marty, think this uh, whole thing starts with teenager in love. Is that is that right? It 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 does it does. So what, now we're up at Lori Records, and um, as the Mystics, uh, as the Mystics, and now you know weeks weeks go by, and and we get the call from our manager saying, oh, "Come up." Uh, Lori has uh, a couple of songwriters that they that they have, and they wrote a song for you guys. And uh, you know, uh, well, uh, we also sang for for Doc uh, and, and Morty when we were up at the office because they wanted to get a feel for what we sounded like. And then they wrote. Uh, so we go in the office and they play. They wrote and they played "Teenager in Love." Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started to learn it. They started to show us the parts, and we started to learn. We had the lyrics and the whole thing. And with, the, with the, exactly how it was recorded uh, later on. But uh, the song was just incredibly great. It was oh. just great. You know when uh, you yeah, hear a yeah, great yeah, song. Yeah, you, right. you just know. So uh, we... we we were, they told us, sorry, right, go home, rehearse, you know, and we'll come up with a 
Well, we already had another song uh, that we were going to do, and uh, but this was this one had this was a great song. So they had a lot of they wanted us to learn it really well. Anyway, when we go home, um, Jim Gribble calls Bobby up, and Bobby told us the conversation that Gene Schwartz decided to give that song to Dion and the Belmonts, basically because. It was not not that it was too good for us, but Dion and the Belmonts were coming off of a of a hit, and they felt that if they recorded this song and put this song out with Dion and the Belmonts, that as a company, as a record company, they would sell more records than with a unknown group. Yeah, like they were a known quantity. The Dion and the yeah, Belmonts and were. and and that. You know, it made sense, mm-hmm. but not to us. Well, no, <laughs> we, of we course. were very disappointed. Uh, I can very imagine. I can imagine. Uh, you know, yes, but so. you know, here's here's a bit of the of the you know the older school early rock and roll where uh, you know, and in, in in some ways similar today, where you're not always in charge of your own destiny because you're not writing the songs. Uh, and, and so, you know, you're, you're at the mercy of what, uh, the suits, uh, feel is best for the company. You know, you're, you're really, you know, at this point, you're a company man, uh, uh, part of the, uh, the machinery. Yeah, well, there. You so, are. Yeah. 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 Whether you like it or not, yeah, you, that's yeah. what you are. But that's okay. And, that's uh, okay. So teenager in love doesn't go your way, but, uh, uh, doc and Mort, write another song for you and just so everybody knows i mean palmas and schumann save the last dance for me this magic moment uh turn me yeah. loose and suspicion with elvis so these guys have yeah. a you know they, they, they're they're a well-known quantity all right so yes, get us yeah. get us to uh hushabye okay so now we get a call a couple of days later come back in and that uh, we you don't have a teenager in love, but Doc and Morty wrote another song for you guys. Okay, so we go in and uh, and they play Hushabye, and we were like, "Oh my God!" Yeah. <laughs> like this is like ridiculous. How could these guys write two hit songs in a row in a couple of days? Right, apart. Right, right. In, a, in a couple of days, I, mean, I knew when I heard it. I mean, even though. He, it's just the two of them playing it on a piano and, and giving us, well, you know, you'll sing this part and you sing this part and you'll do the falsetto and you, and you could picture what, what it was going to sound like. And we learned that song in, in like an hour. It was like, we, we just learned it and we did our, our harmonies and it was, it was wonderful, just wonderful. And, um, again, did you, now, did you cut it that day? No, yeah, oh, no, went, no, 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 and, and really no, no, no. We had a, we rehearsed it a little bit more, mm-hmm. and then of course they had to write the arrangements, um, and then we went in. Well, we already we cut. We, we knew we were going to do that one, but we already had cut um, two two other songs. One was uh, a Weem away, but not not. It's the version, uh, it's the original version of A Lion Sleeps Tonight. Right. Of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Mm-hmm. The Weem Away original version was done by the Weavers in, in the 50s. Yeah, Pete Seeger's band. It had, it had no lyrics. Mm-hmm. It just had, 
uh, it had a great falsetto part, and that's what they were focusing on because Phil had a really unique, uh, solid falsetto, and and our background was was perfect. And um, and then the other song was a song called Adam and Eve, that one of the kids in Jim Gribble's stable, so to speak, wrote. Mm-hmm. So we. Uh, a couple of weeks after we got Hushabai, we we went into the studio and recorded three those three songs. Yeah, which well, Adam and Eve becomes the B side of uh, Hushabai. Becomes the B side, and then right. uh, Weemway goes by the wayside, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, no one I thought did. to write real real words until the tokens came. <laughs> right, right, right. But right. You, now you boys also did backgrounds for a lot of other art, artists recording in the New York City area. Right? Yeah, well, prior to going into the studio, uh, Jim Gribble felt he had he had a whole bunch of young single artists that he was recording at the time. And he, um, he said... Uh, you know what, I, you guys could do some background parts for these people recording. And his his point was, we should really be getting some studio experience, because we had none. You know, technique and where to stand and how, to, how loud to sing. And this is a whole thing that goes along with being a studio uh, musician that is a little different than singing live or anything else. And so we we did a, a half a dozen uh, background backgrounds for different people, um, including Connie Francis. We did background for a couple of her songs too, mm-hmm. um, but not that they were recorded by Laurie. It was just that uh, Jim was friendly with Connie Francis's uh, manager, and we uh, he got us to do that too. But so. That gave us a good feel for to be comfortable in the studio. So when it was our turn to go in and record our own songs, yeah, we, we were very comfortable. That's good. Yeah, and yeah. Of course, it came out incredibly good. Yeah, and again, first Smart, time Jim, out, Jim Gra- Gribble, amazing, you guys, right? Smart manager. He did a good job with you guys. Yeah. 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 All right. So Hushabye is is starting to chart. And then you have people like Alan Freed and Dick Clark calling to have you on their shows. But yeah, I, I got to ask, I got to ask first. So tell us about the yeah. first time hearing yourself on the radio. Oh, my God. That was like, we, we, knew, we knew that a particular DJ was going to play the song. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, the first time we heard ourselves on the radio was one of the backgrounds that we did which was oh, incredible. Okay, okay. Right. But but the first time we heard Hushabai on the radio, we knew approximately what time they were going to play the song on this particular station. And, um, you know, we all hanging out in, in, in the uh, in the Oldsmobile <laughs> and in, in the drive-in and listen to the radio and then they play the song and it was oh my god hearing yourself your own guys your own music your own recording i mean 
even beyond that, when when they gave us the the forty five records, yeah, to see that record with with the name of the group and and uh, the, you know the Hushabai and the Mystics and two minutes and thirty seconds and, and record number and it's a real record. It's like blows your mind because you know within within seven or eight months we went from trying to do a demo to having a hit recording just blows your mind it's just, it's just incredible all right so hometown appearance may 9th 1959 at the Aber, uh, uh albemarle towers towers yeah where you got the first screaming girls effect yeah right right we didn't know how to handle that it was <laughs> just kind of like weird very weird. I mean, we've seen it happen. To, you know, you went to enough shows to see it happen, but when it's you um, and there, you're, you're not quite sure what to do with that energy. I, I, I don't, you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do. You, what do you do? You, you just do just your job. Continue just keep doing, doing your job. what you. You just do your job. You know, and you. You learn that. You learn. You learn how to. And of course, you have a manager. And he, as as you pointed out, Jim's a very very smart guy, and he told us how to act. He told us how to dress. He told us where to stand. He told he, we. He, he was very very good at staging the whole thing, and he, he was very good at pointing out the fact of these are young kids. Do not, do not do anything stupid. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, which uh, young kids have a, a predisposition to do. So it's good yeah. to have so, an adult you know, in the where, room telling I mean, you this is what you do, right? I, I was the youngest guy. When Hushabai came out, I was the youngest. It was 1915. I was the youngest guy in the group, and I was 19. Yeah. So, you know, the kids who would come to the shows – were were from 13 years old to, I guess, to our age. But you wouldn't know who who was what and what age they were. Or you you don't know. And and he would say to us, you you want to separate your personal life from this life. You want to keep that separate as much as you can. So, so if you know, don't get involved with with somebody who is looking to get involved with you other than they're not looking to get the, involved with you. They're looking to get involved yeah, with your it, picture and your voice. And yeah. Yeah. This character, this character of you, of you. Right. So, yeah. You, you, right, that's, right, that's right. what I'm trying to say. Right. And, and he, and he was so right. You know, he was just so right. All right. Uh, so, so, so now, as I said, Alan Freed and Dick Clark, are calling to have you on their TV shows. So what's it like seeing yourself on TV for the first time? Or I just, I mean, there, there wasn't actual recordings, right? So you never did get to see yourself. Is that true? Oh, no, we, we, we saw, we saw ourselves. So, because, oh, so they uh, recorded it. Uh, they and recorded then, it and then, and then played it, you know, like, uh, well, I, I, I'll take that back. Part of some of them were recorded and some of them weren't. Right. The the Alan Freed shows were not were live. 
total, totally live, except for the fact that we never really sang live. It was all, it was all uh, lip sync, right? Lip sync, yeah. You know, everybody did lip sync. Um, I don't think they figured out at the time how to make that all happen with a band and the whole thing was too much. Too, to too much to go wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the first time we saw ourselves was uh, well, we got booked on a Midwest tour and we were out for like. 26 days or so, I don't know, one-nighters. And in the middle of all that, we they flew us into New York City. We, we, we taped the Dick Clark Saturday night show and flew us back the next day out to the Midwest. And the Dick Clark Saturday night show was taped. So the next day we were in, I don't know, Des Moines, Iowa, I can't remember, um, I'd have to refer to the book because I had notes, and and we um, and we're in some place in Iowa, and we had some time before we went on, uh, and uh, and there was a bar right down right a couple of stores away from the theater, and we're looking at the time. We said, you know what, the show is going to start. Maybe we could catch ourselves, and he's that's what happened. We went in the bar and the guy had a little black and white TV behind the bar. And we says, could you put the, the clock? We knew we were on in the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he says, Oh, sure. So that name's asking, are you connected with the theater? Yeah, we're in the show, but we're on, but we're on TV. And, we, and he couldn't fathom, couldn't understand because but at these, the time, these, no, these five guys in front of me in Des Moines, <laughs> Iowa, you're going to be right. on the TV here, and I yeah, don't get right, it. Right, right. How, how how could that happen? Because like you're right. No here. one had <laughs> no one had DVR. Yeah, <laughs> Nobody yeah. knew what recording. You know, yeah, kinescope and all that. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. nobody recorded anything. Whatever you saw on TV, you thought to be live, right? Because right. there was no such thing. Anyway, so this guy, we, we blew his mind. I mean, because he kept looking at the TV and looking at us there at the bar. Are. Looking, there they are. There you are. There they are. He says, yeah, that's, that's you. I don't know oh how you're doing God. this, but that's amazing. <laughs> so that was our... Uh, you got to see yourself on TV. There you go. All right. And, you know, you mentioned you, you did a couple of those early rock and roll tours, you know, with the cold and and or hot buses, uh, lots of acts on a yeah. single tour, lots of stops and just a few minutes each on stage. Right. Yeah. 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 We did maybe uh, four, four, four or five songs. And uh, our first tour um, was in the Midwest. You know, with uh, and that was our, our our first time out uh, to be on the road, and it was just amazing. Yeah, we, and, and, really, and you, really... you got to tour with your your label mates there, Dion and the Belmonts. So, uh, are are you still friends with Dion? I, I well, every once in a while, I, I yeah, I don't see him as often as I do, but I saw him a couple of months ago in new york city and uh yeah we still we still talk yeah, you know, I yeah. 
I, I got a special place in in my heart for for Dion. I just love his voice. Oh, he's just, he's absolutely amazing. Just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Had that. I had, went through a. Uh, I went through a. a uh, just as an aside, but they're trying to do a, a Broadway show about Dion, and I went to um, an investor's showing you know, where they look for people to invest in the, in the play. And, um, I was invited enough with a few other people. Um, and they had a few of these and, uh, the play was just incredible, just incredible. And Dion was there and he talked a little bit, uh, before the, the, the show went on. They had the regular actors that were going to be in the Broadway show and they don't, they don't have a, the costumes and everything. They just do a reading, yeah. So that people who are who think thinking of investing uh, can get a feel for what's what's going to be. And I <clears throat> I thought it was wonderful. I uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's ever going to come to be, but but I certainly hope so because it was wonderful, wonderful. They did a great job. All right, so 1959 must just be a special year for you. Uh, just not people, not many people get that. Um, but no, it, I think it's no. just this one year because it sort of ends badly. December 4th is where things begin to go south for the Mystics with the shooting of Dennis Smith. Yeah, well, as uh, we 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 uh, hung out in a in a friend's gas station um, in Brooklyn and we, not that we stayed there all the time, but it was a place to go uh, and fix your car and and some guys would hang out and we would all sing and, and then we, when we weren't working um, you know, we would meet different guys from the neighborhood and it was always like, you know, in the, in the late evening and we would all hang out. Oh, some of the uh, people that we knew from the neighborhood decided to do a, what they do, which is hold up a stick up gas stations and stores and stuff. And they, uh, I mean, I go into a lot of detail in the book, but it's too much to uh, get into it. But, but the bottom line was that they came in, uh, Phil was there and Albie was there and, uh, I, I happened to not be there that night. I, I had a date, <laughs> which was great. And uh, but this, some of the guys that we knew from the neighborhood came in and attempted to hold up the the guy who was the night guy for the gas station. Dennis to, Smith. And yeah, Dennis Smith. And they and they um, they kind of like. Uh, I think you referred to him as Smitty, right? Smitty, right? Yeah. And they they kind of like, uh, you know, they weren't sure they really wanted to do this, and but they figured, you know, they needed the money or whatever. This is what they do, uh, and and they they when they approached him, he was fixing a tire, uh, and they caught him by surprise, and they had a gun, and it was a loaded gun, and he was startled and, and put his arm up and the, his arm hit the guy's arm and the gun went off and, and it, 
the bullet went right into his head and killed him. Yeah. Now, in itself, I mean, that is a horrible, horrible thing. But they all panicked and they were going to, they all figured, well, we better get out of here and Phil and Albie's. They stayed. Yeah, he Phil stayed and because, stayed to try to help. Yeah, uh, because, uh, well, he tried to help Smitty because he Smitty was a friend, and so the plan, the plan from these other guys who were bona fide wise guys, you know, uh, dangerous people. Um, they said, "Listen, we're going to go. You could tell the police when the police get here that you don't know who did it." They came in, they had masks on or whatever, and you don't know, and and that's it, and they, they went away. Well, as it, the police came and questioned Phil, Albie, and another guy, and, Tarzan. and you know, and they said, oh, we don't know who they were. Meanwhile, the police did some police work and and found one of the, one of the guys because of uh, an odd thing he... He said yeah, he left. Right. He left his car there, and because he lost his keys and, and panicked, and and he left the car, and the police noticed that the car door was open, and they traced it back to him, and and they questioned him, and uh, questioned him in in a way that he gave up everybody. So when the police realized what was going on. They went back to Phil and Albie and the other guy who was at the gas station and says, well, wait a minute. They said they know you. You lied. Oh, no, no. It just, we were afraid because they, they could come after us or our families. And the whole thing got totally bent out of shape and Phil got arrested. And got two years in jail. And got two years in jail. And in those two years... Uh, you know, in the beginning, uh, when he first got arrested, at the beginning, we didn't know, you know, of course, we, there was a lawyer for, for Phil and the whole thing, and trying to figure out how to make this thing go away. And uh, in the beginning, we figured, well, he, you know what, they'll realize that what happened, and eventually it'll all Love. Uh, it'll all pan out and, yeah. and you know when we had to tell our manager we had to tell the record company and uh, we had to cancel a lot of work uh, we, we it was December 5th and then we had a show a few not even a week or two later in Chicago uh, a really big show that we couldn't cancel and we did it without Phil and it, and it wasn't it wasn't a happy time. And no. We realized that at that point that well you know maybe in a few weeks uh, he'll get out and, and we'll go back to normal and we were planning on recording an album and the whole and everything just fell apart because they wouldn't they wouldn't listen to reason I mean the law, the uh, attorneys and uh, the judge and the whole thing it's just got very very involved and it wasn't good. So, yeah, and and then you guys did try to continue on. I mean, you you had did. many different lead vocalists, uh, right? Uh, and, and of course, I ha I have to mention the the, the, I one, know the one short guy, Jerry Landis, yes. who joined the band for a time. Now, now those of you who are in the know know that Jerry Landis was 
Paul Simon's first stage right. name. So so right. Paul Simon actually was 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 going to be the lead for a bit. Yeah, well, it wasn't that he was going to be a permanent lead. I mean, we needed Paul Simon oh, okay. used to hang out and yeah, yeah. So, so it yeah. was really Paul to Simon help would hang out. Okay, yeah, Jim Gribble's office, and and we didn't want to get a permanent lead singer because we figured Phil was going to come back. out. And yeah, yeah, any day, any day now, it's going to you know. So uh, Jim Gribble said, "Listen, we'll get Paul to to." You got to record, so let's get Paul to fill in um, for Phil, and we designed the recording to be like more of a group type recording, so it wasn't a distinctive voice for lead. And and uh, you know we figured, well, you know, we'll get around that. We'll put the recording out. We already had a, re- a recording done with Phil for the for the second. Uh, mm. thing which which was, single, uh, right yeah like a single so anyway we we did that and then and then we paid paul simon as a as a uh studio musician for the session and uh he went on his way and then as time went on we realized that phil was not going to get out it was just then actually he was not uh, they were not going to uh, things were not working out good, and we started to uh, audition within Trim Gribble's office for a uh, for a lead singer, and we uh, well, we had a, a whole slew of young guys. That wanted to audition, of, of course. course. You know, yeah, you're known. You, you, you guys group, are you guys you know? made made men in a in a, you know, a legitimate <laughs> right, business. In a <laughs> yeah, right, right. So we had a whole bunch of guys that we re, that we rehearsed uh, that listened to, and um, the very last guy that came in was a guy by the name of Jay Trainer, and we really liked. His voice was perfect. His his attitude was was good, and and he was a and he was a forty two regular. <laughs> fit into oh, fit into Phil's clothes. Because that you know everyone was wrapped up by all new suits. So so uh, so we 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 get Jay Trainer and. We have him in the group, and we, as soon as he got in the group, we we left for a tour uh, with Alan Freed, a, a bunch of series of one nighters, and and he got boy he he learned the business uh, <laughs> like like throwing somebody in in a pool who never right, swam the deep before, end. right, right into the deep, you know, end. and and uh, and he did really really good. Well, an unfortunate thing happened again with Jay Trainer is that he he asked one of the one of the assistants, uh, Jim Gribble's assistant, if he can get a picture of the group uh to give to someone and and the the, the assistant was a little bit busy at the time, so he opened up the uh, Jim's office and told Jay, go in his the bottom drawer on the desk, you get get a picture and but hurry up. And as as timing would have it, when Jay was in there, 
Jim Gribble walked in, and he thought he was rifling his desk, and he fired him. Oh. So here we go. <laughs> How many things could go wrong? It was the complete opposite of everything that went right. Uh, exactly. And it, it's like this one magic year for you guys. Yeah. And, and it yeah. starts yeah. literally in a day. And and it ends almost in a day. Uh, yeah. It's it's as if the original five were touched by the gods, and now that Phil wasn't a part of it, an essential yeah. piece we no longer, was missing. Yeah. It was just impossible yeah. to fill it. We couldn't. We just couldn't recover. We could yeah. not recover. Yeah. Now Jay Jay went on and and met who a couple of guys that were also hanging out in the office. Uh, who were with a group called the Harbor Lights, and he met. Uh, I kind of introduced him. I really liked Jay; he was a good guy, and uh, I introduced him to a couple of the guys. And they went on and, and realized he had a really good voice, and they formed a group, and that became the original Jay and the Americans. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So now it's 1961, and with the end in sight, you being 21 and 1A yeah. for the draft, you exactly. join up with the Air National Guard. Right. Both both George and I did the same thing. We we joined the National uh, Air National Guard, and in my attempt to avoid the going away in the army because we were going to get drafted. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I still, I wanted to do my military obligation, but I didn't want to spend two years away. And now this was an ability National... for you to kind of stick with the music. Uh, yeah. Uh, other yeah, than the, to... the one weekend a month and uh, t two weeks in the summer. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So that's what we did. Yeah. So you, you you stuck with the music the best you could until the best British, we could until the British invasion completely changed the musical landscape. Oh, that changed everything. Then we realized it's it's over. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's yeah. over. Yeah. You you can continue doing little shows and you know, revival shows and stuff like which we did well, for Yeah, starting in basically the late to, Yeah, st yeah. starting in the late sixties. And and yep. and in the early seventies, the vocal groups have a bit of a resurgence. America yes. began to get nostalgia in the mid seventies with you know, like movies like American Graffiti and Happy Days, the television show, Laverne and Shirley. Right. And then, of yep. course, December nineteen sixty three released in nineteen seventy five. Right. And uh, and and then really since then, every few years. There's a comeback for 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 this vocal group yeah, well, type of, of music. Yeah, Chris, we we've been we've been working in one form or another since 1959 for 60 it's, years. That's 60 years, Al. 60. I know. You don't have to remind <laughs> me. My body reminds me. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's his 60. The anniversary of Hushabye coming up. It is. It is. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Just yeah. amazing. And it's just that we developed such, you know, close. I mean, I I'm still close and and 
you know, thank God that all the original members are still alive and we still get together every once in a while. And uh, we recently did a show with all five original guys uh, in New Jersey and uh, one in New Jersey and one in Long Island. And it was just wonderful. I just, bet. just wonderful. I bet. I bet. Now that you put the whole story down in a book, what's next for you? Well, what, well, the ne- next. Uh, well, first of all, I'm doing the audio version of the of the book. Oh, I'm can't wait to my, hear that audible. My, yeah, and my my voice. You know, my oh, of course. And, I can't imagine in uh, any other voice than the, than yeah, the bottom well, end of the That's what mystics. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody kept saying to me. What? Why do you, why can't you get, have anybody else do that? Right, right. No, you have to do it. You you just have to. And that was difficult. I didn't realize how much goes into it. I, yeah. I didn't realize, honestly, how much goes into writing a book. Yeah. It it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a writer. I I, don't, I never trained. As a, you know, oh, I did. But you I got did some get good stories. Edit. You you know, you, there's yeah. some good stories in this book. So I really, yeah. really. Um, just, it oh, was that. fun. It was fun. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so Audible, you've done that, and then uh, you, uh, let's see, you still have uh, your, your your vocal group, The Classics, right? Yeah, well, uh, go. let's go back to the early days when we were all hanging out on a street corner, and we were so many guys that we, we literally split up into three groups, and out of, out of the three groups came... Um, uh, the mystics, the passions, and the classics. Yeah. And throughout throughout the last fifty some odd years, we it's kind of like sang in each other's groups when when somebody wasn't available or when somebody couldn't do it or didn't want to do it. Some some guys just said, "That's ah, enough. I don't want to do this anymore." So we drew upon. The, the members of the three groups. So we all grew up in the same neighborhood. And so years later, when some, I guess about 20, I guess it's about, probably about 25, I'm talking 25 years is a lot of years, but I'm saying 25 years ago, we were working as the mystics and, uh, and I brought Emil, the original lead singer of the classics into the mystics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we started because he was looking to continue singing, but he didn't have a group to sing with. His guys didn't want to sing anymore. So I brought him into the Mystics, and, and we started working a lot and holding. And then the other guys kind of like said, you know, we're going to like hold off for a while. You guys were working too much. And I says, all right, so you know what? Emil and I will continue with the classics because I love to, to do this stuff. And uh, I says, and, you know, we get a couple of dates here and there as the mystics. We'll, we'll do them. And, uh, and you know, so that's what we did. And we did that for quite a few years. And then uh, with the classics, uh, Emil and I really got really busy. And we kind of changed the format of, of how what we do to a more of a nightclub act. And, um, and the other guys... Uh, George Galford decided to get back into the into performing, and he and Phil uh, put put a Mystics group together out of Florida, and they work as the Mystics. 
every once in a while, if I'm in the area, I'll join them, <laughs> and and we'll, we'll I'll jump in and do a couple of songs with them, which we did recently, uh, especially when the book came out. You know that uh, we every time they do a show, they they bring the books with them, and if I if I can make it, I I meet them. We do a couple of songs, and then we will sell books. There you <laughs> it's go. fun. It's fun. Well, Al Contrera, it has been a supreme pleasure having you on Deeper Digs and Rock with us. Mine too. Mine too. I can't wait to to hear all this. It's just like, uh, honestly speaking, of all the, I've done quite a few radio shows since the book came out, and I'm I'm not blowing smoke, but you really did your homework, and you you got a lot out of me. (laughs) (laughs) you got a lot out of me which is your job which is your job and it was done really well thank you I wanna I'll tell you, this was like reading a movie. It all happened in that pivotal year of 1959. Yeah, in one day, they're in the studio with Mob Money, score a powerful manager, and sign with the best doo-wop label on the planet. They have a big hit. The world is their oyster. And then murder, cops, courts, jail. The others soldier on, hoping to recreate the magic, but it never happens. Not until years later, when they all get back on stage and prove it really is five voices that blend in a special way where even if one is gone, the whole thing just falls apart. Well, that's the way I see it in my head. All that great music, mid-century America, Brooklyn, Coney Island. I smell Oscar. Uh, Better than Jersey Boys. Brooklyn Brothers. Uh, Maybe Spielberg or Hanks or some big-time director will call Al now. (laughs) Once again, the book is Hushabai, The Mystics, The Music, and The Mob, published by Balboa Press. So I'm going to end not with The Mystics, but with The Four Seasons from 1975, and perhaps the biggest song ever for Frankie Valli and company. I know Al and his current act, the classics, do this song. The point is that these vocal groups do have a tendency to keep influencing musicians and continue to keep coming back into pop culture over and over again. There's nothing like four or five voices harmonizing together. That will never go out of style. Until next week, I'm Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist. Keep up the rockin'.
ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.